This episode originally aired around June 2017, so the info is not current. Go support some other great independent, listener-supported podcasts that bring unique, important, and engaging programs to the public. Women in Archaeology. Yes, they're independent, so update your podcast feeds and make sure you're subscribed to the correct one. Archie Fantasies, the mythbusters of archaeology, have gone indie. And as always, curiosity and focus. If you're curious about anything, this podcast is for you. Listen for more episodes from the archives as I work my way back in time until all 29 of the back catalog shows are back out there. New Go Dig a Hole episodes are coming in June 2018, so stay tuned. Welcome to the 25th episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Today I've got Maxime Lamoureux Saint-Hilaire joining me to talk about how ancient politics are visible in modern world situations. So uh, I guess to get us started, um, let's let's get some uh, some info on you. So you're a, a PhD student at Tulane in New Orleans, and yep. you and I had worked together ages ago in Belize. Uh, we were on different projects, but we ended up meeting in yeah. the in the town we were staying in in, in San Ignacio, and. Uh, you know, we've we've had a lot of mutual contacts and stayed in contact over the years. And you've done all sorts of fascinating work. Like you've you've been at, at Mirador, right? No, I have not. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you were you were on, you were on one of those really cool sites in in Guatemala that I've never been to. And yeah, I, I remember been, hearing I, the oh. stories, and I was like, that sounds so awesome. But it, yeah. it wasn't Mirador. So which site was it? I've been at La Corona now for five years. Ah, nice. Yeah. Which is in the same area as El Mirador, so northwest Paten, um, in the middle of nowhere. And it entails a like a, a good bit of hiking to get to the site, right? Uh, well, to to arrive to the site itself, it's eight hours in a pickup truck from Flores, um, and there's not no actual hiking involved. But then when we're on site, we hike every day back and forth a couple times. Uh, but it's it's really not that bad, actually. Um, we're, we're pretty lucky because our camp is basically set on the in the periphery of the site itself. So it's maybe like a, a mile and a half to go to the, the, the palace where I work. Very cool. So what have you been working on for your research? Well, so for my... Uh, my doctoral studies, what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand is uh, the structure of um, classic Maya uh, political institutions, basically. Uh, <clears throat> more specifically, the, uh, the structure of uh, the, the royal court uh, and the, the, the regal palace of, of La Corona. Uh, so it's a case study, of course. Um, uh, so I am of the opinion that uh, the uh, ancient Maya is basically a modern concept that we apply to uh, to the classic Maya civilization because I don't think there was anything um, that was very unified in terms of political organization for the uh, the classic Maya world. I don't think there was a, a a model replicated across all of the all of the lowlands like it has been argued for uh, in the literature. I believe. Um, that there were as many different uh, organization um, for the political powered as there were basically s- polities. <clears throat> so um, 
that's uh, something that's brought me to talk about regime and uh, the concept of the regimes of the Maya, uh, the different types of political organizations that are related to so many different aspects of society. That is really interesting. And I think that there's a lot of uh, modern concepts and, and notions that have been buried in archaeological thought throughout the the lifespan of the discipline that yeah. have been kind of byproducts of colonialism and byproducts of capitalism. So this kind of research sounds like uh, decolonizing archaeological thought in in a way. So that's you, you that's really that. cool. So I don't know. Are you aware of the the article by Richard Wilk uh, in 1985 called uh, "The Ancient Maya and the Political Present"? I am not. Yeah. So that was a pretty cool article that was written. Uh, yeah, by Richard Wilk, big archaeologist, and he was also, I think, uh, some uh, some ethnographic study in um, in southern Belize, actually, uh, looking at the Mopan. And uh, what he uh, he was talking about in that article is how modern political currents uh, affect the kind of questions and the kind of research that our, our Maya archaeologists were doing. So he was comparing uh, basically uh, during, let's say, the Vietnam War, people were interested in, in, in uh, matters of uh, um, war um, and the ancient Maya. And then with the hippie uh, movement, people were interested maybe in uh, envir environmental aspects. And with the rise of postmodernism and feminism and archaeology, started, people started studying households and um, perhaps aspects of, of, of slaving and stuff like that in the ancient Maya world. And so that was a, that sort of echoes what you were just talking about. That is really cool. And I think that's a good segue in, into the conversation that uh, you know brought us to this podcast. We had uh, crossed paths at the uh, annual SAA in Vancouver a few weeks ago. And uh, you had mentioned your your idea, and you had just delivered a, a talk on the the concept of you know the the connection between ancient politics and and the modern world. So, what are some of the things that you dealt with in in your presentation there? Well, uh, actually, that presentation uh, was directly related to um, the economy that is related to uh, rural courts. So, the ways in which um, what kind of activities and uh, supported daily life in uh, at a Maya rural court, uh, specifically the one of, of La Corona. Um, so um, the model that I'm sort of advocating for um, the, the 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 classic Maya is what I and the classic Maya rural court more specifically is what I I talk what I call the the pragmatic model okay. because I think. Because I think uh, we sort of uh, forget sometimes uh, that there is a lot of uh, pragmatic aspect of um, ruling. So we think of so in the literature when uh, people talk about political economy and things like that, uh, we often uh, think of um, exchanges uh, of uh, prestige items and um, and these uh, the production of, of of very fine ceramics that are made um, at courts like. Uh, Naranjo and gifted to small sites like Buena Vista and Belize, and we found those uh, this kind of evidence in the Maya world. Um, but then um, one thing that we don't necessarily think about is what it really meant to uh, live on a daily basis at a rural court. What kind of activities were necessary to uh, to support um, the court and um, their different activities? 
So what I did, uh, th that talk that I was giving at the essays was the result of a study that I made, that I did that was sponsored by the uh, National Scientific Foundation. Um, that's, um, that was based on a geochemical study of the floors of um, patios that are, that are located in, in the, the palace at La Corona. And what I have at La Corona is that I have these, these two adjacent patios that I've been working on. Uh, we're talking about a pretty large palace one that's maybe in the same size as that of Cajalpech or the Palenque Palace. Yeah. So, um, so two courtyards that um, measure uh, basically 30, 40 meters on under sides. And um, while there's one of the courtyard that's a very elaborate one that is made of, of this really uh, fine, fancy, decorated architecture with all these hieroglyphic monuments that are everywhere. So it's a very political uh, and, and elite Courtyard, and then you have this this small structure that is a passageway structure, with uh, the only point of access between that courtyard and the next courtyard, which is a it's not really a courtyard. I call it, it's a group. So the okay. northwest group, which has these small patios uh, that are adjacent and uh, kind of distinct in their uh, pattern, and that's surrounded by some of the nice architecture, but also some perishable architecture. And that seems to have sort of a backdoor access to the palace towards a, a, a small group that's at the back where it looks like you have sort of a normal household group. Um, so I've been, I've been thinking about how this, this group is probably the economic sort of uh, group in, in the, uh, in the palace, but and by economic, I mean uh, ancillary or place where people were storing food, people were preparing food, making furniture, uh, working on different crafts, um, creating costumes, and all these things that you need to uh, do the daily activities that a royal court would have to do. Uh, so, um, so, I, but these kinds of things are kind of hard to detect, right? And yeah. we know that. We, we, we can look at uh, storage facilities and things like that at places like Aguateca, which is a site that was abandoned very fast during, a, a, during a, a, probably an attack. Uh, and then we, we, we have a bit good information of what was being stored. But in most, Maya, in most cases, uh, classic Maya sites were abandoned uh, pretty slowly. And um, that means that people just brought everything they wanted to bring away with them. And uh, so we don't find many places, uh, many artifacts in situ that can tell us of the function of specific um, activities like that. Uh, so um, what I did is uh, in order to, to get uh, to this is, is I'm going to give a talk at uh, the Maya de Lago conference in North Carolina in a couple of weeks. And it's called uh, Invisible, Invisible Clues. And it's going to talk a bit about the methods that I've been using to try to, to find the, the this very subtle archaeological uh, proxies that we can use to try to understand that. And so I divided the um, I divided the patios and grids of one square meters. And, and for every square meter, I took a sample of, of stucco um, and I took a sample of uh, soil. And then the sample of stucco was sent to a laboratory uh, located in uh, Florida at University of South Florida where uh, a, lab, a lab directed by uh, Christian Wells, who did uh, ICP-MS uh, analysis on my, on my stucco. So instrumental coupled plasma mass spectrometry analysis to try to um, find all the different elements that are located, that are, that are composing these stucco uh, samples. Um, and um, these, um, these elements, of course, it includes uh, what we would call compositional elements, 
So you have things like, uh, <clears throat> sorry, yeah, yeah, things like calcium uh, and strontiums and uh, aluminum that are naturally present inside of, of, of stucco. Um, but then you have all kinds of other elements that seem to be absorbed inside of stucco because of the activities that are performed there. Um, the traditional one that people pay attention to is phosphorus, for example, uh, which is um, related to uh, um, the activities that use some organic material that, that decomposes and leaves phosphorus, and, and then that phosphorus is absorbed by, by stucco. Uh, but then you have other activities, uh, such as uh, perhaps the working of, of different uh, minerals and uh, things that include iron, and then iron also gets absorbed. Uh, then you'll have... Um, Mercury, for example, that's associated to working of cinnabar that gets absorbed, and so you can you can basically look at the relative absorption of all these different elements over space, and that the, the key point is the relative distribution, and you can try to understand uh, the bigger the space you have, the more relative data you have, and this allows you to try to pinpoint what kind of activities is going on where in these patios, because we know that the ancient Maya did a lot of activities outdoors not necessarily indoors yeah so yeah. so that's what i was talking about uh, at the essays that's really cool and I, I can see how all of that fits into your pragmatic model of kind of the the function of these royal courts and that's one of those questions that we always ask ourselves when we're excavating at maya sites is well, what was the function of this structure so mm -hmm. that's really neat how how you're teasing out uh, more and more info from all these different sources. And I, I like how you explain that too. That was, that was really interesting because it was like you anticipated uh, all the, all the questions of like, well, how, how did you find that info? So that's really, that, uh, that's neat to hear about the ICPMS study in the, in the plaza. Because yeah, the, the thing that, one of the thing I'm talking about, I guess I didn't talk, start about it this way, but if you look at the literature uh, on classic Maya uh, rural courts, we, we mostly hear about the grandiose aspect, right? So uh, nice dances with uh, costumes full of feathers, um, feasts where really fine food is being consumed, which is, of course, I believe a very important aspect of it. But then there's the whole other side of, of, of it, which is the preparation, the storage, the accounting that goes behind that. And um, that sort of... Um, what makes it an institution, you know? Um, so, uh, and then something that's, that's pretty cool that we have at La Corona as well is all the epigraphic data. So all the inscribed hieroglyphs that we, uh, that we have, uh, the, the hieroglyphs that are carved in stones that are left at the site. And I was lucky enough to, uh, to find uh, seven monuments at La Corona over the past uh, three years. And, um, and, and it's both lucky, but it, had we been really lucky, I would have found a lot more because uh, what, what happened at La Corona is that there was a lot of looting uh, in the 60s and 70s. And I found a looted uh, hieroglyphic staircase that was mostly destroyed. Oh, no. uh, yeah, yeah. What a few uh, we found uh, one, two, three, four monuments that were left behind uh, by the, the looters because they had they were broken um, or they, they hadn't found them. But then I found a, a couple of monuments that were perfectly well preserved that the looters didn't find that were in sort of an exterior throne. And uh, I found another panel that was really large that it was that was indoors uh, inside a room, a throne room that the looters had passed right next to that they didn't find. But nice. one of these, yeah, one of these monuments that I found that, that that's been discussed by David Stewart on his blog, uh, 
uh, ancient decipherment uh, dot so dot org or something like that. I could give you the exact address. Um, is uh, it, it's talking about a really interesting thing, which is um, how the, one of the the kings of of La Corona. What's important to understand is that La Corona was a small site uh, with a big palace, but it was a small site, and it was um, basically. Uh, established as a royal court under the auspices of of the probably the, the strongest and largest um, state of the Maya world, which was the Khan state, Kanul, uh, which is now um, pretty well documented and was originally based at the site of Tsibanche in Campeche in Mexico, and then moved its capital from Tsibanche to the site of Calakmul, located in um, Quintana. Uh, sorry. Sibanchi is in Quintana Roo, but Calakmul is in Campeche. And uh, Calakmul is not too far from La Corona. And from, from there, Calakmul basically expanded and conquered most of Peten and uh, was, also, was also present in northern Yucatan and all the way to Chiapas. So it was a very strong regional state. <clears throat> and La Corona seems to have been a very close ally of, of the Khan state. And uh, what we know is that what I was going to talk about is that one of the blocks I found is talking about how um, a king of La Corona is called to go to Calakmul and uh, it travels a few days, arrives at Calakmul and while he's there, he spends a few months there just before uh, accessing as a king at La Corona. And what he happened, what we learn about is that there, there are some rituals that are happening and he's wrapped with new clothes and he's given new power. And as soon as he comes back to La Corona, uh, he basically celebrates his accession to kingship by, by founding uh, new sites in the vicinity of La Corona is, and moving population from La Corona to live in those new sites and things like that. Things that are talking to us about um, what happens uh, when a new king arrives and uh, aspects of basically institutionalized uh, political power. And what I think happens is is when this, this king is called to go to Kalakmul, he's not just going there to receive his new robes and his new... Um, power he's he's there to be basically uh entrusted with knowledge that's related relative to um to kingship and to ruling he's basically being taught by the by the kalakmul rulers how to rule how to become an appropriate uh king and uh, being instructed in the art of rule ruling if you will and then when he comes back to la corona he's uh he's basically um enacting that by founding new sites and, and so on. And what's interesting too is that uh, that king of, of La Corona is, is married with this, the daughter of uh, this, uh, this, uh, the, the king of Kalakmul. So there's an alliance, a marital alliance between these two sites. So, um, and then we know about all of this through the epigraphy and it's fascinating. It really gives us a good historical insights and in how things were being done. But then it's really hard to try to tease out uh, archaeologically where these kinds of decisions were, were happening at, uh, at Maya Royal Court. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and it's cool how the epigraphy goes in to explain more or less how the institutions functioned. And so you can see in the material record, you know, the, the kind of practical uses and, and the locations of these spaces of production. But in the epigraphy, it, it talks about how the uh, institution operated in terms of the instruction of this new king um, at Kalakmul and you know how the uh, kind of strategic wedding happened to form an alliance and all that. 
That's neat. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Unfortunately, the epigraphy, what we're missing from uh, from the Maya world that, that's present elsewhere, for example, if you go in the Southeast Asia and you look at places like Angkor, or even if you look at uh, ancient Mesopotamia and all the, the cuneiform tablets that they have there, which is talking about all the administrative aspects of how um, sites and, and polities are being ruled and the economic aspect and uh, how storage was being done and who was in charge of storage and who was gifting what kind of taxes to uh, the different institutions, be them the church or the, the, the king himself. And uh, this sort of level of refinement of understanding of the administrative and uh, political economy, uh, we don't have for the Maya. We know from um, some evidence on, on, on painted vases or on uh, engraved panels, we, we see that uh, at court there were scribes who's, who are taking notes during those meetings. Uh, there, there are people who uh, are known to, to be writing, for example, the, the kind of tributes that are being given um, from one site to the next and so forth. But we don't have really those records because those records would have been written and on a perishable kind of paper or made maybe of, of, of textile or, uh, or cloth or perhaps uh, made of leather. And these have not um, injured through the passage of time. So we don't have access to those. But we know that they existed. You know, that's the thing. And so uh, I'm, tr I'm trying to, to understand what these could have been and how uh, perhaps these... Um, these would have been related to the different parts of a palace. And so it's, it's one of those questions that I have. And the, um, I was mentioning quickly earlier on that, that, uh, very fancy rural courtyard, um, is separated from the economic side of the palace through this really tightly controlled passageway structure that has two doorways, of course, uh, as a passageway structure, and two benches facing one another. And one of those benches, very, very nice and looks like a throne, has a nice uh, backrest and all. Uh, while the one ac across from it is very broad and wide and lower. And it seems to me that this, this space is, um, is basically a point of control for accounting what's coming, uh, what's being basically, what, what's transitioning from one courtyard to the other maybe to keep track of the tributes that is being stored uh, on one side or perhaps for keeping track of what kind of uh, food or item are being brought out of the, the magazine into the rural courtyard to be distributed perhaps during feasts and so on. That's really interesting how the royal courtyards are this kind of combination of not only a symbolic uh, grouping of architecture but also a functional grouping of architecture in terms of uh forming a, a structural control over uh, the distribution of of resources and you know production and and the display of goods as well absolutely yeah no i mean then that's what i'm interested and in. that's what i mean by pragmatic approach is to think not only of the ways in which power is displayed but in how power is accumulated and um and, and how alliances and networks are, are fomented and maintained. Uh, so that it's, I mean, political economies are pretty complex topic. And, and then when we look at the modern world, uh, we can think of, of course, of how, um, the political economy works here in the United States, 
um, and that is, I mean, uh, the, the state is funding itself through taxes, uh, income taxes and things like that, but also uh, imposed on, on commerce uh, and, of course, on fines and so forth um, through, uh, to, to the different um, institutions like the police and, uh, and so on uh, in the United States. But, I mean, then, but at the same time, our modern economy is, is kind of, of, of strange because uh, we can produce money endlessly uh, with prints and since money isn't even uh, anchored in, in any actual uh, um, material goods anymore right so so it's 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 a bit it's a bit um, hard to wrap our heads around the way uh, modern political economy works uh, but then uh, that's just um, that's just the way uh, our sort of Western capitalistic uh, work uh, world works. Uh, I, I, being from Canada, I have a slightly different vision of it, where we have more of a social democracy going on and more uh, more money being taken from people, and uh, that providing specific services like healthcare and free education for everyone. Um, and those work um, very well in Northern Europe. But then, if you move to the different parts of the world, you have all these different kinds of political economies going on with uh, perhaps kingships, kingships still being dominant in some places. Um, uh, and then like uh, the uh, Arab Emirates uh, or um, socialist countries uh, like Cuba uh, or, or China that are still uh, have different ways of functioning. And um, when uh, we, we look back in, in history, uh, we have some uh, understanding of how these, these different, evolved from different uh, regimes uh, of of ancient history uh, of the of the Middle Ages of the antiquity of course we can trace that back to to uh, ancient Greece that's obviously well documented uh, for us uh, but also um, we can look uh, at how um, the Middle Ages worked and how feudal Europe had a totally different system uh, than our modern uh, economy and that's something that I've also been uh, looking at. And one thing that you you, you start looking, uh, you start learning when you look at the um, ancient medieval world is that the ancient medieval world is nothing like uh, what we really uh, imagine it in our um, in, the, in our in our mind, because uh, the visions that we have of, of the Middle Ages is that of the role of the of the king sitting at court, and uh, we have images like uh, Game of Thrones popping in our mind. Uh, or, or King Arthur and so forth, but um, while we look to uh, to the literature uh, on let's say 13, 1400 uh, medieval um, the medieval world, we see that the ancient uh, courts were uh, working in a very uh, distinct way uh, from one another, and that one thing that made made them uh, special was that the king was generally uh, part of a court that was moving around all the time and he constantly had to travel around the, his, uh, his, his kingdom constantly with this big uh, caravan in order to maintain fealty between his different constituents and so forth. And those are the kinds of things that I'm trying to think if we can apply these sort of uh, medieval uh, uh, models to the ancient Maya in order to explain um, the, the big diversity that we have in, in our political organization. Yeah, and it seems like the diversity also reflects the diversity in kind of the distribution of resources and, you know, kind of the, the patchiness of uh, different, you know, zones of production as it Absolutely. were. Absolutely. 
yeah, yeah, no, that's that's very true. Of course, the foundation. Uh, if we start wondering why are certain regimes different, uh, of course there are many. I've actually been thinking about that uh, very question recently, and you're talking about the resources and the patchiness of them. So of course the uh, environmental or ecological context or geological context will have a strong impact on on what uh, are the bases of of power for for the different courts and the and an economic basis or perhaps if a site is located uh, at the right place uh, for commerce uh, for uh, and then it can help us understand how trade uh, can be a, a, an important mo- engine for a specific political economy that is really cool so let's bring it back to the the United States and uh, you know kind of our, our current settings. You you had touched on how it's really interesting that we have this symbolic currency uh, that's not really tied to a, a specific value, and it's interesting in in the global economy how we have you know capitalist states doing business with socialist states doing business with um, monarchies. And they're all operating on kind of this global exchange of symbolic currencies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, on a on a smaller scale, on like the national and even regional scale, you have these states that are, you know, dealing with taxes, as you had said, and kind of funneling the taxes back to the federal government and, you know, even to different state polities. Well, the, I think one of the main lessons is is actually that we have to think about how this this system works. I mean, the lesson itself is it may be in terms of questioning the structure and how things work best and what's actually uh, a working uh, engine for for any given uh, polity. I mean, we tend to uh, forget um, that these are complex. Uh, systems because we're, we're, we're part of them um, very much so from the inside while when we think about ancient economy like um, like in the case of the classic Maya it forces us to to try to understand uh, how did this state function um, what uh, what kind of resources did they produce where did they store them how did they uh, maintain um, their networks of, 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 of alliance when did they decide to go to war and why? Um, did they plunder each other? Um, uh, did they attack them uh, for reasons, uh, for personal reasons? Uh, did they um, decide to attack one another while they're having dessert? Um, <laughs> did, they, did, they de- <laughs> did they decide to attack each other because uh, the gods suggested that? Uh, was the, the church a big factor? Uh, did they decide to attack each other because they wanted to convert each other to specific types of religions? Uh, there's so many different reasons uh, for a geopolitical conflict, and there's so many different reasons, as you were saying, for for uh, economic success of, of parties. And and these these are kinds of questions that that become very dim in our mind when we think about uh, modern uh, geopolitical relationships because we always see the political landscape uh, as something that is synchronic. We see it as we look at a world map today and we say, oh, this is 
how the world is, and those are the borders that are established. But to be frank, uh, every we, we would need to change the world map almost every year to re- reflect appropriately all the borders shifting across the world. So um, archaeology uh, provides us this sort of diachronic perspective, looking through time and how things uh, are constantly uh, in motion. So uh, that's uh, I think that's probably the best lesson uh, that uh, archaeology has. Uh, for for the present uh, and, and is that is that the present is is only a very thin slice of time and that we have to think of things as constantly changing that is a really cool perspective and i can see how that fits back into something you had said when we first started this podcast about how um there's this vision of politics and there's this vision of you know whatever the that thin slice of time is as something that's uniform and so like a kingdom might be seen as a a uniform kingdom or a you know national government might be seen as this national unified uh political structure when in fact it's actually this collection of very diverse uh political organizations and economic and social organizations and i can see that fitting into the the practical model that that you've put forth in what we're dealing with right now, you know, just, um, it's been interesting to live in Portland, Oregon during these political times where, um, you know, things, things are just very different than they are say in like Charlotte, North Carolina. And, but that's also on an even smaller scale, you know, Oregon itself and Portland itself is not a unified political entity and it's not a unified social entity nor is it an economic entity there's a whole lot of diversity there and there can be conflict within that diversity and i think that understanding the way the the way that social and political and economic institutions operate and change over time and deal with diversity can you know help us help us not only um accept diversity but but like celebrate it and work with it in a productive way rather than resist it and fight it and you know mm-hmm. tear each other apart yeah yeah and also the questions of of, of um temporality of political organization is that everything is constantly changing so we're constantly dealing with reality and as humans, we can best abstract reality and we make model in our mind. And what uh, a, a child psychologist named Piaget, who's French, uh, who's, who's been uh, trying to understand how children try to uh, represent or understand reality, um, uh, has suggested is that the way we abstract reality and create models in, in our mind is always one step behind from the actual complexity of reality. That all our models are always slightly simpler than the reality. And as we constantly develop new institutions and new concepts that are more and more complex, we're still always one step back from it. So um, that's one of the things that I've been trying to think about when trying to uh, understand the structure of how maybe a regal palaces uh, in the Maya world represent the organization of a court. And if you try to look at, as I was talking, one side of the court that's more ceremonial and political with one other side that's 
perhaps uh, more economic or ancillary in function and how those are operating with one another complementarily. Plus, there's another section when you'd have perhaps the, the, a large throne room located on top of a pyramid that's being seen from the main plaza and how all of these things uh, are completing a function in the uh, organization of, of, of the royal court. Well, what Piaget tells us is this organization of the court or the way it's been mapped out by the architects and, and, and thinkers and philosophers of, of the Maya was uh, the best way they could uh, modelize the way their, their state was working. But in fact, their state was more complex than that. And even then, didn't really fully understand that. And this suggests for us, for example, when you think about the way that uh, the American government is organized. <laughs> um, and it's, 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 as one could say, a little top heavy, right? There's yeah. so many different instances that make decision and how, how all of these decisions eventually can all be crushed by one veto. And so it's, it's a very strange, uh, system and it's it's very complex um and yet what piaget would say is that the way that we are abstracting it and we are modelizing it is actually uh slightly anemic and it, it's missing parts and we need to constantly review these and that's why institutions are constantly evolving and, and being modified that is really interesting and it explains why there's such uh, kind of a, a cultural lag as as people in other fields of research have, have talked about behind um, you know as t in terms of institutions tend to have a cultural lag versus what you know the general populace seems to be prioritizing and it's because there's a lag behind how we understand our our political institutions and then that lag then causes a feedback loop because it takes a long time to effect political change. And so yeah. the, the feedback loop is constantly delaying and, and echoing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so one of the things that I've been wondering at La Corona where I work is, um, and I think it's very similar to what you had at Cajal Pech, the site where you've been working. Uh, we have small sites with very large palaces. And what this tells me is that, um, the, and the way actually that we, we know from uh, the Lacron excavation that it's a fairly late um, development at the site that is correlated uh, with the uh, we our known uh, with our known uh, dates uh, that we know through the epigraphy from the uh, um, inception of uh, the the relationship with the big Kanul uh, the big uh, empire looking uh, states in the Maya world. And what I think there, what's happening is I think that um, the political institution that we have at La Corona, the kind of regime, the kind of kingship that was going on at La Corona was, was um, basically implemented there by Calakmul. And they said, hey guys, uh, you need to uh, start uh, managing your territory in a certain way because we're going to be asking for tribute. We're going to be asking for help. You're going to be marrying our daughters. We want them to um, have a, a system that they understand. So this is how you're going to, to do kingship. This is how you're going to, to rule. And this is how you're going to make allies. And uh, this is a, here's, here's a, a, an architectural plan drawn by uh, one of our architects. And why don't you build that for your royal court? And so uh, instead of having uh, 
the development of, of, of kingship in this case, well, you have sort of a ready-made kind of adoption of a form of political regime that's happening, something that's kind of analogous perhaps to um, maybe Spanish colonial uh, structure and how, and that explains why all Spanish towns have this socalo or the center of town where, where you have on the, the main park with one side has the market, the other side has uh, the army and the other side has the government. And then this, this is something you find everywhere because it's, it's a pretty simple organization that, that, that fulfill the functions of, of, of political economy for, for um, in, in, in the middle ages. And so, uh, versus other states, uh, like Calakmo or like Tikal or Naranjo or, or Caracol and all these different large, uh, top heavy, um, states of the Maya world, where in, in, instead of having a, a ready-made and kind of easy to understand um, political organization that might be uh, recognizable in the architectural organization of their, of their palaces, you have these very different uh, different kinds of idiosyncratic uh, governments that instead of being adopted uh, wholesomely are developed over a long time period. and. Uh, and are perhaps more complex and, and less easy to understand because um, their, their, their side core, their royal palaces are, are, are very accretional and, and, and built over so many years that it's hard to tease out the functions of, of all of their different sections. That is really neat. And I think that it's, it's great to be looking at the complexity of these ancient political organizations because you know, throughout the history of the discipline of archaeology, they've been oversimplified and then, you know, a little bit more complexity here and there has been injected. And I, I think that now we're looking at, in earnest, looking at this great diversity and incredible complexity, you know, that then, as we've talked about throughout this episode, reflects into the modern world. So we're kind of dealing with these ancient structures that have hangovers into what we're dealing with every day now. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and then again, one thing that we have to always keep in mind when thinking about the Maya and or any other archaeological culture is that uh, when we look at uh, the top plan of a site that's been drawn, let's say the Tikal top plan or the Chichen Itza or one of those big famous sites, and you look at uh, the way the site is laid out, well, that layout for the site is only the layout it had in the very last years it was occupied. You, you, you go back 200, 300 years before, the site would have looked very different. At Tikal, you go uh, in 650, and there's none of those large temples that people visit today. Temple 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, they're all built in the last century. Before that, the site was totally different. And um, that was uh, at a time when uh, it was under the, the sway of the Khandul uh, Empire. Um, after that, um, after they, they, they finally uh, got back, on their feet and actually crushed Kanul, that's when they started building those big temples. And it, it, there's a big transformation in the regime and the way they're doing things. So even when we think about large sites like Tikal that know so well from the epigraphy, uh, we have to think about uh, the fact that it changed constantly. That's a really interesting point to bring up about how the the forms that we see are, you know, even in, in ancient history, are are just a a slice in time and you know it's important to remember the the deeper perspective of you know the context where those sites have have sat it's a very very similar to what i was talking about earlier looking at a world map from from today versus a world map from uh, 
50 years ago and there's it's so different and that's because a map only represents uh, one uh, a synchronic view it's just one day in in the history and that's why uh, those 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 animated maps that we see now are so cool because they show you how things are are being transformed um, yeah uh, i it's funny to look at maps even from our own childhood you know we're <laughs> we're about the same age and uh, especially as the the former soviet union collapsed yeah, uh, those Eastern so, Bloc countries, you know, they changed names and they changed shapes, you know, almost every year there throughout the, the 80s and 90s. And, uh, you know, it's 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 like you said, politics are always changing and, and the map is always moving. Yeah, I mean, I think the the the, the most drastic transformations um, are, are the ones that the Western colonial powers have, have influenced. Uh, if you look at Africa. Uh, in 1800 versus Africa in 1900, it, yeah. it is insanely different. Or the Near East, uh, the Near East after for, uh, after the World War One, how it was uh, separated between the, the colonial powers, uh, they, and how Israel was created there. Um, it's it's transformations uh, that are altering uh, the geopolitical landscapes. Um, the kinds of transformations that can have happened maybe at smaller scales in in any. Uh, given uh, complex civilization that uh, had a sort of colonial um, um, a approaches to, to territory. Yeah, so that that reminds me of a, of a question I was doing on er earlier when you were explaining something. So about, uh, at least in, in the Maya, um, are there evidences of, of Maya colonialism? Like you had mentioned the that kind of model of, of governing and establishing uh, like ceremonial and political structures, are those part of a, I, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like a, a colonial structure that, that they were employing for political control, you know, out in other reaches of the kingdoms? I believe so. Yeah. I, I think you're, you're saying this well. Um, so yeah, we, we don't, we don't fully understand the whole uh, variety uh, of, and the meaning of all the different titles that we have from the Maya world yet, but there's definitely um, the foundation of new sites is definitely something that that's happening. And, and then what is colonialism? If, if that's not it, right. There's people going somewhere and creating a new town and moving population to live there uh, and giving that a name to that uh, town and, uh, and these towns, of course, had different functions. You could have a town maybe that was uh, simply a small uh, agricultural suburb, or you could have another town that was there as a commercial uh, port of trade, or you could have a different town that was there to uh, extract perhaps a specific type of resource. Um, and uh, Or you could have a, a town that was built somewhere maybe only to claim that territory as, as part of the kingdom, you know, the, the same kind of... Uh, things we see today. So, yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely a strategy. And now to say that this was the way every single uh, Maya kingdoms behaved, the, the way they behaved, I, I believe that's probably not the case. Uh, that's what we see happening in the uh, mid-7th uh, century uh, and late uh, and, and, uh, and 8th century. And that's the way uh, Khan and uh, the, the, the Kalakmo state was doing things. We don't know that that's the way other states were doing things. And so uh, we all, uh, to, to that, um, that point, that we are, the most famous case is probably um, the foundation of, of Copan um, in the aftermath of the Entrada by Teotihuacan, uh, the large uh, central Mexican uh, city-state or empire that, that came and, and, and conquered uh, a, a 
parts of the Maya world in the early classic period. And a few years after that, we see uh, people from Tikal going all the way to Honduras near the sources of jade and founding a site uh, at Copan, uh, somewhere where there was already population living, but they were local. And now we have these big Maya groups going further southeast and, and creating these new places, we think, to control uh, jade uh, which was, of course, one of the most uh, valuable commodities in the, in the Maya world. So, yeah, so that that sounds pretty familiar to uh, to us in terms of, uh, of political, economical kind of uh, strategies. Yeah, especially in terms of uh, strategic control over uh, resource extraction and then uh, the production of goods, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And um, But then again, we have, this is the Copan case, uh, well, we have examples, recent studies by Demarest and others at Kanquen, which show that Kanquen was basically uh, talking about large balances. Kanquen is has a humongous balance, uh, but that's about it. You know, there's the site is very uh, uh, doesn't have a big side core outside of that. They have a lar- large population, but now we, we, they've found more obsidian cores at one uh, workshop in Kanquen that they found in all the years at the Tikal project. They found these crazy amount of production in this small town that's not really, that wasn't that, that major. Um, but it seems that they, were, they had maybe certain sites that were specifically aimed towards a massive production of goods. And there's also jade production at Kanquen. Um, and, uh, one, and one can imagine that um, that would have made Kanquen a very desirable place. And eventually uh, that, that site is... Uh, destroyed and all, all of the royal family of the site is murdered and, and thrown in a, in a pool of water and we found them they were excavated uh, there so um it's it's it's, it's a very interesting insights into uh into the, the political economy and how it transformed and how it was definitely not unified <laughs> there was diff- <laughs> yeah different ways of doing things yeah and and you read uh, of other instances at, at other sites where you know there have been you know peasant rebellions where um, you know, the, the royal elite were gathered up and beheaded and, and their skulls were placed in pits and stuff like that. And yeah. uh, those violent snapshots in time uh, really highlight uh, that uh, there definitely was not a political unity uh, within that, that um, I guess, like political boundary there. Yeah, no, I think that the best, uh, uh, the best analogy in history, um, for me at least in my understanding, for the Maya world is is uh, like 14th century Europe, uh, where you had the uh, you had the the Holy Germanic Empire uh, that was kind of waning away, plus, and then you had the Kingdom of France that was consolidating, <clears throat> and then you have all these other uh, duchies. Uh, I don't know if that's how you say it in English, but um, the dukes and and princes and um, all these uh, small noble houses trying to consolidate power everywhere. Um, between and around those two big forces. And, and that's kind of how I, I, I see the way my things were happening. You have constant competition between different uh, noble groups trying to consolidate power. And then you have one or two or three very strong ones that are long established, that are sort of constantly shifting balance and affecting everything around them by their, the way they're, they're doing uh, more or less uh, strongly. Nice. Maybe I can say one thing, uh, something of interest is that uh, with my advisor, Marcello, we're, um, we're about to host a, a conference. It's going to be called Regimes of the Maya uh, here at Tulane in the 
in the fall. It's not really a conference. It's a workshop that's funded by uh, the Wintergrand Foundation. And so we're inviting scholars from around the world to come, and we're going to basically tackle my political organization uh, from a perspective that is looking at uh, all the variety that there was. So, uh, and then this, this is supposed to, uh, this is projected to become a, a volume. So there will be a, down the, in a couple of years from now, maybe a, a volume addressing uh, these questions more explicitly. Nice. And when is that uh, conference or, or workshop taking place? Uh, over, it's going to happen in early September uh, over Labor Day. And are, um, are submissions open right now? Uh, well, uh, no, it's, 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 uh, it's an only an invite. So, so this is a workshop. So, uh, okay. yeah, it's going to be a three day thing. Uh, if, if you're, uh, for, for students of my archeology span who are uh, at Tulane those days, there will be uh, limited seating for people to come in uh, and, and come and ask questions and, and participate. But yeah, no, it's not really a, a normal conference. That sounds really interesting though. And, and the work that will come out of that in the edited volume is, is definitely mm-hmm. going to be something that we'll all have to keep on our radar. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's the idea. Nice. And uh, where can people contact you if they have uh, questions about about your work or or anything they want to talk to you about? Oh well, they can write to me uh, easily by uh, through email. Uh, uh, my uh, Tulane email is m l a m o u r e at tulane.edu. Uh, so that's uh, for uh, the first letter of my name and my last name. So. Um, M-L-A-M-O-U-R-E at Tulane.edu. I'm, nice. I'm happy to engage in discussions. Awesome. And uh, thank you so much for your time today, Max. Thanks for listening to the Go to a Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, all of your contributions are incredibly appreciated and uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support so thanks again and please uh, share this with any of your friends colleagues classmates students teachers whatever Uh, you can also find me online I'm very online Uh, the blog is godigahole.com you can find me on all the social media platforms at godigahole